I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles with me tonight to the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and to the 14th chapter of that book. And there's a short section that we're going to be reading together tonight. What I want to do is to continue, and if the time makes it possible, I would like to finish up a very short two-message series that addresses the question as to whether or not we ought to be relinquishing preaching. And what has given rise to this is the fact that not only liberal churches, but evangelical churches and fundamentalist churches are discontinuing their regular Lord's Day evening services, what we would refer to as preaching services. And in many cases, they are doing other good things that include much good ministry, but it is a relinquishing of one of the few preaching times every week. What we want to read together tonight is a portion of this chapter that begins in the 26th verse. And what leads up to it is the Apostle Paul saying that all of the Lord's people in this assembly might do what he calls prophesying. We've looked at this passage in great length in our series in Corinthians a number of years ago. Prophesying is a broad umbrella word, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that has a much narrower application, but apart from those instances when it is being confined to what the Scripture teaches us was the ministry of someone who was formally in the office of a prophet. Apart from that, the word is used much more broadly. Paul says here that all of these people at Corinth can prophesy. And in the 26th verse that we're going to read now, he gives five different ways in which forthtelling for the Lord may take place without actually being a person who is formally called by God to be a prophet, technically. So let's begin our reading with the 26th verse. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, when those people gathered like we have tonight, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation that would be an interpretation of what was spoken by those exercising the gift of tongues. Regardless of who it is who is speaking and what they're bringing, whether it's a psalm or an interpretation or a teaching like that, the end or objective must always be this, let all things be done for edification. And then what he does in the verses that follow is to give some instruction about how to keep this in orderly arrangement. Well, let's read what is said about that. For instance, the person who comes and exercises the gift of tongues, if anyone speaks in a tongue, 
should by two or at the most three, in other words, in a meeting like our meeting tonight, there would have been no more than three allowed. They must do this in turns, so they're not all speaking at the same time. And then one must interpret, which one of the evidences that a person did have the gift of interpretation, because regardless of what language it was that the tongue speaker was uttering truth through, the person with a gift of interpretation could handle any of those languages, though he did not know them naturally. That was the gift of interpretation. And it was part of the safeguard on those tongue speakers that in fact what they were doing was given from God. Verse 28, if there is no person like that, no interpreter, then the tongue speaker must keep silent in the church. He can speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak. These are the people who are actually bringing what in verse 26 is referred to here as something revelatory. Let the others pass judgment on that, which lets you know that this is not the same thing that you would have with an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament apostle. You didn't have anyone evaluating what they said and then giving official recognition to it. But in this case, and we've gone all through the interpretations of these things and can't take the time with it tonight, but I'm just sort of talking our way through it. Two or three prophets speak, let the others pass judgment, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, then the first one must keep silent. You can see how this is all being regulated. You can all prophesy. You can all do it by turn. You can all do it one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. But there is this, verse 32, that the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. In other words, no one is to claim that he's been given something overpowering by God and he just must do this It's almost beyond his control. No, that's not the case. God is not a God of confusion, verse 33, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Now, verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. In other words, this was not just New Testament, this was Old Testament teaching as well. And in all these discussions that were going on about the prophesying that was made, the speaking in tongues, interpreting those tongues, then the ladies were not to be giving their opinions If they were to learn anything, they were to ask their own husbands at home. It's improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? In other words, Paul's asking them if there's something unique about their assembly that would mean that what is proper and regulated for every other assembly of believers didn't apply to them. The answer, of course, to that was no. 
And then, of course, the apostle is very aware, the Holy Spirit is very aware that there could be objection to this teaching, that there would be people actually offended by it. So verse 37, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or thinks that he's spiritual, spiritually minded, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. So there's no dispute or argument about any of this teaching or the regulation of what is going on in these assemblies. This is the Lord's commandment, and if anyone does not recognize this, verse 38, he's not to be recognized himself. He's not to be given any voice with his objections to it. Now, my main point in going through that passage tonight is only this, that what you have here in the Corinthian church is an arrangement that in some respects is what some of the churches are going to now on Lord's Day evenings. They're going to small gatherings in which there is a give and a take and where there may be teaching or maybe prayer together, but there's an entering in and various people are contributing in various ways when it comes to this matter of umbrella word prophesying or giving the word of God, teaching it, instructing, interpreting it, and so on. Now, it's obvious from this passage that this is an entirely scriptural thing. This is not an unlawful thing. It is not anything to be despised. In fact, our churches would all do well to have more such meetings as you have here in 1 Corinthians 14, undoubtedly. The question is whether we do well to relinquish preaching for these things. Whether this is scripturally prudent. And what is apparent in this passage is that there is something missing here. What is missing in what the apostle just described here? There is no preaching. Why not? Probably because at Corinth there was no preacher. Now, the Corinthian assembly had enjoyed and experienced much preaching. The preaching of Paul the preaching of Apollos. But nowhere in either of the Corinthian epistles does Paul refer to what we call a preacher in that assembly. It isn't at all the kind of thing that you have when Paul writes, for instance, what we refer to as the pastoral epistles. When Paul writes that first one to Timothy, Timothy is the primary leader and a preacher in the church at Ephesus. Timothy is charged with a paramount responsibility regarding his oversight in that assembly, even though there are other elders in that assembly. Yeah, the same thing when Paul writes to Titus. It's obvious that Titus is being addressed as having a unique role. He's called to appoint elders in all those assemblies on that island. 
But Titus is given certain charges that are specific to him in a leadership role that is not occupied by the men whom he's going to oversee and appoint to these offices of elder. In other words, folks, what you have when Paul writes the pastoral epistles and addresses them to Timothy, the second one, to Timothy, another one, to Titus, is the same thing that you see when the Lord sends the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor some decades later. And every one of them, the Lord begins with, to the angel of that church, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, to the angel of the church at Smyrna, to the angel of the church at Philadelphia, and so on. And the word that is translated angel there is angelos, which is the New Testament word for a messenger, a messenger that is heavenly, referred to as a celestial being, or a messenger that is an earthly mouthpiece for God, like John the Baptist was. He's referred to as the angel who's come, the angel that was sent by God, a messenger. It's very apparent when you read those letters that they're not being addressed to some angelic beings in heaven. Each of those assemblies at that point had someone who was primary as a messenger of God. Those men were held, first chapter of Revelation, they were held in the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when you read the Corinthian epistles, there is no one there at that point like that who is being addressed. The letters are addressed to all of them, and Paul is saying to these people, you may have these meetings like this, but there is no preaching that he refers to you. There is no preacher who is addressed that way. That becomes, I think, a very significant point. And what it does, folks, is raise this question, obviously, how can I say that there's no preaching here? If you actually have people who are teaching, if you have people who are bringing a word of exhortation, he refers to that earlier in the chapter, that those who prophesy speak a word that's edifying, comforting, exhorting. So you've got exhorters there. You've got people who are coming ministering psalms. You've got people who are giving some, in some way their sense of having received something from the Lord that is of the nature on a secondary level of a revelation, but you've got other people actually discerning and evaluating and confirming this really is the thinking of the Lord. How can I say that in none of that is there preaching? How can I say there's no preacher here? Well, it raises the question, doesn't it, as to what is preaching? And how does it differ from those things that are very similar to it, but do not in the end amount to it? And that is the question that I began addressing in the first of these messages several Lord's Days ago. So I want to just recover that quickly tonight and then move right through and past it and on. Folks, how do you yourself... Mark preaching. 
And what I suggested to you is that there are, in general, two factors that are almost unique. When you have preaching, first of all, it is a single individual, a man. It is a single male who is doing it. In other words, it's a monologue. And secondly, when it comes to the people themselves, they're in the position of being listeners only. That is all that they are doing. They are not giving their viewpoints. They're not objecting. They're not even raising their hands for further qualification or to get a question answered. In fact, if anyone did that when preaching was going on, nearly everyone would think that that person was out of order. Why? Because it's understood and it's been understood for all these centuries now that preaching is different. That if you have a group of people in a situation where there's teaching going on, it's quite natural to raise your hand and ask a question. If it's a group of people like this, it's quite natural that you have various people contributing. But when it is preaching going on, this is what marks it. That it is a single spokesman and everyone else is in the position of simply listening and listening quietly. Now, folks, the confirmation that that is the case is the fact that these are the two things which people actually today are arguing could be improved upon. That those are the very reasons that in some cases we ought to be moving to a different format. Because when it's preaching, only one person gets to talk. No one else is getting to exercise his or her spiritual gift of teaching. People argue that there is a certain lack of helpfulness to that, that it isn't really as efficient, that people would learn more easily, that they would be more responsive if this wasn't all being done by one person. How much more easily people would learn in a different format that encouraged group conversation and even one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Now, it isn't my point to enter into any discussion of that. It's just simply to make this point, that their primary point confirms my point. That that is the nature of preaching. Whether you view that as a positive thing or a negative thing, everyone has that understanding of it. One person is doing all the speaking and everyone else is having to quietly listen. Preaching is a monologue. Now the most important question when it comes to that that I raised last time is whether that's a scriptural arrangement. Especially when its effectiveness is called in question. And particularly in an environment that the world has come to 
within this last century where nearly everything is being democratized, including the churches, the democratization of the churches. And really, essentially, preachers themselves attempting to convey that they're not really so much different than the congregation. Look at their bios on their websites. Look at the things that they enjoy doing. Look at the things of which they are fans. They're really not so much different than anyone else. And you have so many of the Lord's people today who've had access to theological training and have well-stocked libraries and truly are gifted by the Lord. So is this really a scriptural arrangement? And even if it is, ought it to be so guarded as we have in the past? That's a very important question. And in answering that question, what we did is note that when we open the pages of our Bible, we actually find Bible characters and they are functioning in this very way both Old and New Testament. And if you ask yourself, how is it that they heightened their own importance and put themselves in a position where they expected everyone else to listen while they did all the speaking? Now what you find in your Bible again and again is those men did not take that on themselves. In fact, in many cases, they argued with God about it. They attempted to run from it. It was the last thing that they wanted to do. But what we're told is that this is a calling. That a man is constrained to do this. Like Paul says, woe is me if I don't do this. And you have to remember that Paul was saying that having a lifetime at that point of ministry experiences in which doing this brought him nothing but tribulation and trouble. But it would be a far greater woe to him if he did not do it. Because he had been appointed to it, he says. You see this in the scripture. And it isn't just these formal prophets and it isn't just these apostles. You see this same kind of thing in the case of a man like Timothy. And Timothy's example is given to us in those first two pastoral epistles, 1 and Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy. The reason that those letters are in the Bible they, the way they are is because that is the section of our Bible to address these very kinds of questions. That there are people just like this They are not apostles. They are not like Old Testament prophets. They are like Timothy. And they have this same unique constraint upon them. And the church has recognized it and laid hands on them, formally ordained them out of that recognition, set them apart for that. And Timothy, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. You preach the word. That is a very solemn thing. I open my Bible and I see people in just this situation. And what I find is that it was demanded of them 
by God. They are solemnly charged to engage in this. And when I ask myself, well, what is it that they're doing that is different, for instance, than the teachers in those assemblies? They're both handling the Word of God. They're both using the Word of God for the same end, to edify the church, to bring change to people's lives. What is different about these people? And the answer is in the Word that the Holy Spirit uses to describe the nature of the communication of people like Timothy. It isn't just merely teaching, it's heralding. These men are heralds. And they're in exactly the position as these ancient public figures of mass communication who came with the authority of a ruler, a king, a general, and were charged that no matter what the response or the personal cost, they were to stand publicly and without alteration of that message, they were to herald it with authority to people. And that is the word out of all of the New Testament words for speaking truth or communicating the gospel. That is the word that is used for this situation. So, yes, folks, this is a scriptural arrangement. And when we ask ourselves what is distinctive to preaching, it is this arrangement. One speaker, multiple listeners. And that speaker is there by divine demand with divine authority. Now that brings us to this tonight. In that opening message, I mentioned that when it comes to understanding preaching, you have these two factors in general that are distinctive. But then you have other things that are not, that are not unique in nature to preaching or to a preacher. Maybe the best way I would know to say it is, but they are heightened in the case of preaching. They're things that are shared by other truth givers. But those very things are heightened in preaching. And that's what I want tonight to give our attention to. And I think the best way that we can get at this is by Drawing a comparison here wouldn't exactly be a contrast like differences between these men so much. But really by standing side by side, gifted teachers and preachers. And just for a moment, stop and just ask yourself. And I think this will be helpful. Don't mean this in any way to, to uh, single anyone out or to be embarrassing to anyone here. But would you do this for just a moment? Would you just mentally, in your mind, think of two or three people you know, and there's no question about it, they are gifted teachers of God's Word. All right, now, would you at the same time now think of two or three people that you know, and there's no question about it, they are preachers of God's Word. 
Now here's what's probably interesting about your response on that. In some cases, it's almost the same names in both categories. But you yourselves well know that if I said to you, I want you to think of three teachers, but they're not preachers. They're gifted teachers of God's Word. They can preach, but they're really not preachers. That's not what they do. They teach. Now you can draw the distinction. And the reason for that is because there are similarities... But there is distinctiveness, and that's what I'm trying to get at now. Because, folks, the viewpoint can be that actually there's not much difference. When I accepted a full-time teaching position on the Bible faculty of Bob Jones University, I did so, and I asked for this very humbly, but I did so under the condition that I could definitely be a pastor and a preacher at the same time, that I could not accept that position if it meant that I was not able to preach in a church as a pastor. And I was very graciously granted that permission, and that was my situation until 1989. For nine years, I was in that situation, and finally I'd come to the point where I just felt I've I'm going to have to abandon the blessing and the privilege of teaching the Bible nearly every weekday like that to classes of students so that I can do more preaching. And I sought counsel from several people for whom I had high regard. One of them is a man who now is with the Lord. Um, He was a superb teacher I don't know that he ever pastored a church. He was not really known as a preacher. He could preach. He preached in chapel sometimes, but he mainly was a teacher. And in all earnestness, he said to me, Mark, when it comes down to it, there's really not that much difference between teaching and preaching. And he was telling me that to try to dissuade me from leaving teaching for preaching. And his viewpoint was, You're drawing a distinction here that really isn't warranted biblically. There's not that much difference. But if you're a preacher, you know there is. And it was that that had taken over my conscience at that point. And so it does. I'm giving that illustration, folks, to make this point. There is such similarity that you can really understand people saying, look, we have services and you have one people person doing all the talking and he's preaching, but there's really not that much difference if we get together in smaller groups together and we have two or three people who can teach and various folks who get to ask questions that are going to be so much better. There's really not that much difference. And actually the one is a far more effective means of getting the word into people. The group teaching... And you can certainly understand people's thinking that way because there is such similarity. So, folks, what is different? What I'm saying here is I think the best way to get at 
understanding the distinction when it comes to certain things heightened in preaching is by comparison with teaching. So let me try to flesh that out real quickly. What is a teacher? Well, a teacher is someone who trades in information. It is his calling and it is his interest to impart information, to help other people acquire what he has come to know. There's some people and their trade in life is in commodities or in construction or in various forms of entertainment. A teacher is engaged with knowledge and imparting that knowledge to other people. And in the Scripture, in the New Testament, that knowledge to be imparted is called doctrine. Another word we use for it is the word theology. A Scripture teacher is engaged with the knowledge of theology, of scriptural doctrine. And he explains that, and his attempt is to work that into the minds of the people listening. Work it into their minds, and insofar as he can, work it into their hearts as well. Now, I want to ask you, do preachers teach like that? In other words, folks, is doctrine, is theology something that preachers trade in as well? Teachers do. Do preachers also, are they also occupied with Bible doctrine? Yes or no? Absolutely. Scripture is abundantly clear about this. When Paul writes his first letter to Timothy, the fourth chapter of that, as we have it in our New Testament in the 13th verse, Paul says, look, Timothy, you need to give attention to your teaching. Three verses later in verse 16, he says, Timothy, you pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Yeah, but again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, when Paul says to Timothy, you're to be a workman who studies to show yourself approved unto God, and you need to be the kind of person who cuts straight the truth, cuts straight the word of truth, the scripture accurately handling. Yes, preachers are engaged with the theology of scripture, with the doctrine of scripture. That, in fact, is why it makes it difficult for us to differentiate sometimes. Because it is the same content. But folks, what I'm pointing out is that there nevertheless is a distinction. Evidently, uh, one of the things that indicates this is the life of our Lord and His own public ministry. And I want to ask you, if you will, to turn with me real quickly to a succession of texts here in the Gospel of Matthew. Go to the fourth chapter of Matthew. We're going to run through three just real quickly and you'll see what I'm talking about. This is toward the beginning of our Lord's public ministry. You remember that after John the Baptist was imprisoned, then our Lord himself began to take up that ministry. And look at what the 23rd verse says. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. 
Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming. Now that is the word for preaching, for heralding. He was going through all that region, teaching in the synagogues, and heralding the gospel of the kingdom, and healing. Look with me, if you will, at the ninth chapter. Real quickly, you've got to turn quickly in verse 35. Matthew 9, 35. You have the same thing recorded of him later on. Matthew 9, 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. And here it is again, heralding, preaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Two chapters later, look at chapter 11 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving his instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and to, same word, and to preach in their cities. Now, folks, these references ought not be taken by us to mean that we're dealing with two ways of communicating truth that are mutually exclusive, that have no commonality to them. But there is evidently something that can be distinguished between the two of them or you wouldn't have both of them spoken about. That you actually can distinguish. You have this same kind of thing in the life of the Apostle Paul. I won't have you turn to these references, but at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is, as you know, in prison in Rome. What's he doing there? Listen to the record of the Holy Spirit. He is preaching. He's preaching the kingdom of God and he's teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul writes that first letter to Timothy, he talks about himself and he says, Timothy, I was appointed to both of these things. I was appointed a preacher and a teacher. Now that's a very interesting matter because it does indicate to us that though these things have some commonality to them, there evidently is a portion of the sphere of each, we would say, that you can mark as being somewhat distinctive. You know, to, really, it, it's like I'm really trying to make a point that everybody agrees with and everybody already knows instinctively. Our former pastor, Mr. Jesse Boyd, was a real teacher of Scripture. Dr. Bob Jones Jr. brought him out of the pastorate in Jackson, Mississippi in order to be a strong Bible teacher on the Bible faculty. But what is really interesting about this is during Pastor Boyd's tenure, the word that was out among the students was this. That if you wanted to hear Pastor Boyd preach, take one of his classes. But if you want to hear him teach, go out and attend his church. That's interesting. And if you know anything about Pastor Boyd, that pretty much did characterize it. On one occasion, uh, as I was going into graduate school, one of the members of the administration asked me why I attended Mount Calvary, and I just responded immediately because Mr. Boyd's a teacher. 
And in those days, in this town, there really weren't very many pulpits where you got good, strong, expository teaching. That's why most of us who started attending here at the beginning began attending. There wasn't really anything else in terms of ministry except what was happening from the pulpit, but what was happening from the pulpit tended to be expository teaching. But if you took Pastor Boyd for a Bible class, he would shell the corn on you. He would preach at those students in that class. And the thing that's interesting is those undergrad students who really at that point in their development certainly didn't know in any detail what we're dealing with tonight, they instinctively recognized the difference in the same man that on these occasions he teaches and then there's this other and he preaches. And you see in the New Testament itself that there is some distinction like that. So it raises this question that I'm raising, and that is, what is this difference? And I want to ask you now to turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I think you'll see it in the charge that Paul gives to this preacher. This passage that I've quoted for you earlier tonight is the passage in your New Testament for men in this office. It is a distinctive passage. It is one of those high watermarks. If you had a topographical Bible, this one is a peak when it comes to direction given to people like Timothy. And if you'll notice this, please, it all is based on what is said in verses 16 and 17 of the previous chapter. So let me begin there. When it comes to our Bibles, every chapter, every verse, all of it, it all is breathed out by God. But that isn't Paul's primary point here. His primary point is this, that because it's breathed out by God, it's all profitable. Ecclesiastes, the genealogies, breathed out by God and profitable. And it's profitable for these things. It's profitable for teaching. That's what we're talking about. Information, doctrine. But that isn't all it's profitable for. It's profitable for reproof. Every time that word is used in the New Testament, it has reference to persuading people that they're doing wrong. The Bible is profitable for that. It's profitable for correction. And that has reference now to taking people and they have fallen and you stand them up straight. The Bible's profitable for that. And it's profitable for coaching. Pedagogy is the word here. Training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Now, that being the case when it comes to the Bible, keep right on reading, folks, as if there's no chapter reference there. Because there wasn't when Paul wrote this letter. All of that being the case about Scripture, I solemnly charge you then, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. And in this context, 
The living and the dead that are being particularly referred to are the living and the dead who are going to do what Paul is charging this man to do. I solemnly charge you as if God himself and Jesus Christ are witnessing the charge I'm giving to you right now. I solemnly charge you in their presence and Jesus Christ someday is going to judge the living and the dead, including, and most specifically in this context, people like you, Timothy, people like me, Timothy, appointed to be teachers and heralds of this Bible, this inspired Bible. That truth, I charge you, Timothy, that you preach it. And when you do it, you do it like this. You don't just teach. You do use the teaching. You do it with patience and with didache, with teaching. You're using the teaching. But Timothy, your preaching isn't just didache. It isn't just doctrine. You preach this way. Reprove. Rebuke exhort with that doctrine. Now that is preaching. And folks, that is the primary way in which preaching heightens. It heightens teaching. It heightens it with reproof and rebuke and exhortation. In other words, it heightens it with all those forms of application that we're talking about. Now, a teacher does some of that. But if a teacher really majors on that in the classroom, then the students say, take his classes and you'll hear him preach. Because they are instinctively aware that when that communication takes on that character, you moved out of the realm of simply teaching. Now it's preaching. And that is indicated in the New Testament, that this is the primary distinctiveness. I want to try to show you, if I can, a verse that I think is very helpful in this regard. Would you turn back to the 12th chapter of Romans? Romans chapter 12. And this is the first place in the New Testament where you have spiritual gifts referenced and where you actually have a list of them. There are five such passages in the New Testament. This is the first of them. And the apostle has just spoken of the fact that we're all one body, but we have individual, we're individual members. Verse 5, now look at verse 6. Since we have gifts that... And what's the next word? Differ. Gifts that differ. What are some of those gifts? Let's drop to verse 7. Service. That differs from the others. Or teaching. He who teaches. That differs from the others. Look at verse 8. And he who exhorts. That differs that differs even from teaching. We have gifts that differ. Some of us need to give our attention to teaching. That's your gift. 
Some of you, you need to give your attention to exhortation. That's your gift. These differ. But folks, in a preacher, you have them combined. Timothy, you preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with that teaching. It's combined in a preacher. You know, you have some folks, and they're almost pure teachers by, by giftedness, by calling, by effectiveness. Our bookstore, for instance, is stocked with hundreds of volumes by both men and women. God gifts both men and women for teaching His truth. And we have volumes in our bookstore by both men and women who are gifted teachers. Some who are centuries old and some who are contemporary with us. And they're recognized by the body of Christ. They're recognized by people for having that giftedness and effectiveness. And many of those people, the body of Christ, thrusts into classrooms. Some of them have gifts of such height that everyone recognizes that person needs to do that full time. It's a wonderful blessedness and an advantage to our church that in Sunday school or in ladies' meetings and various gatherings that those people teach, but that person, that person needs to do that all the time. So we put people like that into college classrooms and seminary classrooms. And listen, it's not that they never exhort. If they're good teachers, they do do some exhortation. They would, they, they would actually be remiss if they did not do some exhortation. But it isn't what they major on with the teaching. Their primary intent is to get an understanding of this information into the minds of those students so that those students hold it and can reproduce it. Who could themselves reteach it? That is the point for a teacher. And we all understand that those people many times write such profitable books and we put out vast amounts of money to have well-stocked libraries in our homes and much of what we have there isn't done by preachers. It's done by people who are nearly pure teachers of those things. And then there are evidently, folks, there are some people who are exhorters. You know, this became, in the days of the evangelical awakening in Great Britain, a matter of great controversy because God initially was using some of the ordained clergymen in the Church of England, the Wesleys and Whitfield being the prime examples. But the Spirit of God was working in such a way that you had thousands of people coming to listen to this preaching. And you had so many people genuinely coming to Christ all the time. And these people wanted more than what they were experiencing in their staid and formal liturgical Sunday services. And the Church of England had everything locked down in terms of prescribed required forms. So these people started to meet. They started to meet in 1 Corinthians 14 kind of meetings. And so many of these people were 
when it came to any theological training, they were utterly illiterate, but, but they had great zeal. And so you ended up with a whole class of men called exhorters. And people would come together, and these men would take it upon themselves to rebuke and reprove and to urge all the rest of these people. It became a matter of great controversy. The Church of England had great difficulty with this, that under the Wesleys and Whitfield that these people were rising it up and taking it upon themselves to be moving and pushing people in this way. The Wesleys themselves, Whitfield, they had to all deal with this. And even among some of these great Methodist preachers, there ended up being real controversy between them about the place of these people. My main point is just simply this, folks, that you have people and they really are not teachers, but they do have something in them of the nature of a drive. An exhorter pushes on people. He urges. That is his strength. And when it comes to preachers, you have those two things together so that that teaching doesn't come in pure form. In other words, I shouldn't say it is pure, but it doesn't come alone. In a preacher, a preacher is using that teaching. He's using that to get at people, to push on them, to urge them, to compel them, to bring them to verdict. That is preaching. It's no wonder that men flee from the thought of that. It is so confrontational. You know, one of the things that I hear most often from Christian people inside and outside our church when it comes to really holding one another accountable, you have the same thing with parents. They'll say, I hate controversy. I hate confronting. I can assure you, you will not be a good parent if you don't learn to confront. And you will never be a preacher if you're not prepared to accept the calling to have to be confrontational all the time like I am being tonight. It's the teaching pushed on the lives of people. So that's the first thing that I would say is really heightened when it comes to preaching. The teaching is heightened in that way. And that, folks, brings me to this, the second way that I would say that it's heightened. And I've given most time to that one, and I want to move through three others now tonight as we move toward conclusion. Preaching not only heightens the teaching like that, but because it's doing that, then it also heightens the personalization of that teaching. You could call it the individualizing of that teaching. Let me try to illustrate this from my own experience. One of the classes that I taught at the university for many years, both when I was there full-time and later on when I was just part-time, when I'd come to the church full-time, was the first Bible class that the freshmen took. In those days, the university was much larger. I typically had 900 or more students in that Bible class, broken up into three sections of something like 300 per section. And those young people were coming from all over the country, many other parts of the world. And I well knew from my own experience and from being around students that there was a vast difference between 
the amount, a vast difference in the knowledge level of those students. And I was very concerned from the beginning that as I taught those students that I didn't have part of the class checking out, like, oh, we're the part of the class that already knows this, that's for the beginners, or when we got to the more involved teaching, that I didn't have the beginners checking out and saying, that's way over my head, that's for the people who have gone to Christian school all through their lives to this point. So I would explain in the very first class that problem that I was facing. And I would say to them, so there are two things I'm going to assume about you. Number one, I'm going to assume about you that you don't know anything. I'm going to assume that about every one of you. That's not true of all of you, but I've got to assume that. I'm going to assume that none of you know anything. And so my expectation and my effort is going to be to engage all of you with the most basic things. But lest those of you who do know a lot of Scripture think that this is going to be boring and just a retelling of everything you already know, I want to tell you the second thing I assume about you, and that is that you can learn anything. And so what that means for those of you who are beginners, that my assumption is going to be that there's not anything that I would teach here that you too can't get. And that was my effort, folks, to get my arms around everyone so that when I taught all of them, in their own minds and perspective, I was teaching all of them. However, I'm a preacher, and it was natural for me every class to narrow at certain points in that teaching and say things like this. Now some of you, or there are people here today who are thinking, and I was deliberately narrowing. In some cases, I was narrowing to people who had a false profession of faith in Christ. In some cases, I was narrowing to people who doubted their salvation all the time. In some people, I was narrowing to people who always had had a bad attitude toward authority. That wasn't true of everybody. But folks, what preaching does, when you start reproving and rebuking and exhorting, you're not doing that typically to the whole bunch. It's a portion of them. Preaching heightens the individualizing of that teaching the personalizing of the teaching in that way. And that's why the Apostle Paul speaks in the way he does about this. And that was, by the way, folks, that is why preachers typically are what the Bible calls pastor teachers. They're in a position to know a flock. It's their pastoring of them that gives to them the knowledge of where people are. Generally, that is not true of people who are just primarily teachers. They're not engaged with people pastorally like that. Pastor teachers come to services, if they're preachers, they come to services and they have a much closer relationship and an awareness of where people's weaknesses lie, the temptations that they're dealing with, the defeats that they're sustaining. And so the preaching takes on a character 
where throughout the teaching in those sermons, there is the narrowing to, now some of you today, and the person standing in the pulpit doing that well knows, though he may not know every case of that in the congregation, he well knows that there are instances of that, that out there and that those people need that very thing. Now that brings me to this thirdly. What are the distinctives of preaching we're looking at, first of all? When it comes to heightening, it heightens the teaching. How does it heighten it? It primarily heightens it by this matter of what we would call the exhortive nature or the application of the reproof, rebuke, and exhortation that are in keeping with that teaching. And in doing that, secondly, it heightens the personalization and the individualization of that teaching. And thirdly, you cannot get away from this. Folks, preaching heightens the insistence that is inherent in that communication. It is that personalizing of it. It is that individualizing of it. It's the nature of exhorting that there is an insistence, in some cases an urgency, that marks that. And it is an insistence for immediate change. That's why when Paul writes to Titus and says to him, Titus, now you need to speak these things. You need to exhort. You need to reprove. And you need to do that with all authority and don't let anyone disregard you. In other words, this is not a matter for people to go away and say, that was an interesting viewpoint. I'm certainly glad to know his position about that. Not one that I would agree with, but I certainly am pleased that he was able to get that across. It's worth thinking about. That is not the way it is. When a preacher preaches, he has a sense in his soul that he's come to understand the teaching and it needs to be approved and applied. People need to be exhorted in this fashion and they need to change. He wants them to come to a verdict. And he wants it now. And he wants it today. And of course, we have largely moved from the kind of pulpit work that really puts people in that position. We seldom give demand at the end of sermons for people to come now to a decision about this tonight. And one of the reasons that that's happened is because we have more and more turned our called men into majoring on teaching. When I was coming through and training for the ministry all those years ago, in our circles, we needed a big, big dose of the kind of theological training and preparation that would enable men to really teach and exposit Scripture, to cut it straight. Most of what was done in the pulpit was heavy on exhortation, very light on teaching. There was a joke when I was a student that you could always tell, for instance, a man who went to Dallas Theological Seminary. How could you tell him? 
because he couldn't be in the pulpit without an overhead projector. That in those days was the way that you really laid out teaching so everybody could see it. You had an overhead projector. And the point was, if you really wanted to be a teacher, go to Dallas Theological Seminary. Maybe that was a broad brushing of things, but it kind of makes the point that I'm talking about, that we were light on that. But folks, we're really heavy today on men who can teach and are well instructed. So many of our men today, when I was a student, so many of our men really ignored seminary training, and that was a mistake. But today, almost everyone wants extremely advanced teaching, including coming, including achieving the terminal degree of a PhD or a doctorate in theology. And in consequence of that, our pulpits are very strong when it comes to theology. We have trouble, though. We are light now on actually using that in a preaching way and insisting that people make decisions about this and that they do it now, that this is the day of decision, that you must yield to God about this. In real preaching, there is a heightening of that insistence. People are not left just to give consideration to it. It is assumed that the Spirit of God is at work when that exhortation is given and that people are required to come to change. Folks, that brings me to this then as well. When Paul said to Titus, you do this with all authority and don't let anyone disregard you about this. There is this about preaching, and that is that it heightens it heightens the atmosphere of authority. Now, it isn't that the preacher himself is the authority, but he is speaking with a heightened authority. That is just natural. When someone just teaches you you're generally accepting. But if they start trying to correct you, your brain says, who is he to talk to me like that? When you start to correct people, you are assuming a role of authority. Preaching, preaching that is teaching with reproof and rebuke and exhortation, preaching heightens that. The insistence heightens that. The atmosphere of that. And that, folks, is exactly why people so object to it. And it's one of the reasons that many, many Christians today would far rather have less of it But the fact is, preachers are there to do exactly what Scripture says in this regard and what preachers of the past have so noted and had to deal with. George Herbert, best known as an English poet of the early 17th century, 1600s, he nevertheless himself was a preacher and a pastor, and George Herbert likened it this way. He put it in these terms that a pastor is the deputy of Christ for reducing people to obedience to God. 
A pastor is Christ's deputy for reducing people to obedience to God. That's authority. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was in his early 70s, he had to retire from the ministry at Westminster Chapel in London at the age of 68. He'd had colon cancer. He said the Lord just brought the shade down for him when it came to continuing in that pastoral role. The Lord gave to him 12 or 13 more years of ministry. It was itinerant in its nature, and much of it was putting some of his preaching into books, which some of us have on our shelves and so widely appreciate. But in 1971, Westminster Theological Seminary invited him to come and give a series of lectures to those students studying at the highest level, seminary level, give them some lectures on preaching. And they have been recorded and printed in a wonderful book entitled Preaching and Preachers. I highly recommend it to you. I've recommended it to men all these years. Lloyd-Jones just says, is it not clear as you take a bird's eye view of church history that the decadent periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching declined? The decadent periods, folks, have always been when there's been a decline in men who stood with a sense of the authority of God on their souls They were charged solemnly in the presence of God about this. They recognized that Christ is going to hold them to account. They've got to say it. They've got to preach it. They cannot just keep it reduced to teaching. They've got to correct people with it and insist on change. Where that has diminished, it has been decadent in the churches. I understand that, don't you? If there's no one really demanding change, if there's no one with authority who's correcting, what would you expect was going to happen to people who are still indwelt by flesh, surrounded by the world, whose real warfare isn't against flesh and blood, but against invisible demonic spirits they can't even see? What would you expect if there's no one standing and heralding God's word and saying, thus saith the Lord, you must submit to it. Lloyd-Jones says it's as clear as can be when you get a bird's eye view of church history that where preaching has declined, there is decadence in the churches. What is it that always heralded the dawn of reformation or revival? What he says is not only a new interest in preaching, but a new kind of preaching. And that's true. John Bunyan captured that when he portrayed Christian in interpreter's house. An interpreter takes him into a room and shows him hung up against the wall, the image of a very grave person very serious person. That person stood with the best of books in his hand and the law of truth on his lips. The world was behind his back and he stood as if he pleaded with men and a crown of gold was on his head. And Christian said, who is this? 
An interpreter said, this man is one in a thousand. He's different. And folks, that being the case, and I want to bring you to this lastly, preaching heightens the accountability of a person like that. A person who's going to place those kinds of demands on people and live with those people pastorally year in and year out over a long course of ministry, his accountability is greatly heightened. All of the elders are to be apt to teach. The Scripture says that. And Paul says when he writes to Titus that those elders need to be able to convince and exhort the gainsayers. But among those elders are people who labor in the word and doctrine. Timothy was such an elder. And when Paul talks about that man, you have. You have the qualifications for all the elders. But you ought to read what he says to Timothy. You ought to parse how detailed it gets for Timothy. In every single way, even though he's a young man, he's to be an outstanding example for those believers. And he is to be immersed in that teaching. He's to give himself to teaching, to exhortation. He's to be in those things that his own personal profiting may appear to everybody. And the accountability that he has before God is hinted at when Paul says those words, I'm charging you in the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge you. He will judge the living preachers at his kingdom when he's coming. He'll judge all of those who are deceased at his coming. I'm charging you in the presence of God in Christ. You preach it and you preach it like this. And you do it in season and out of season because the time is going to come when people will not put up with it. Now what they're going to want is teaching. But they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers after their own desires. So while you have an opportunity, unload it on people. Preach it in season and out of season, Timothy. What an accountability a man like that has before God. Now folks, please listen to this. There are many, many churches today without a preacher. We have more and more circle, more and more churches in our circles who are like the Corinthian church. They have some gifted lay people, some of whom can teach, but they have no preacher. I want to raise the question again. If a church has such a man, and by the grace and calling of God, he's one among a thousand. How quick should those churches be to forfeit any of the opportunities to be under his preaching? 
And you consider how few those opportunities are every week. And look at what the preachers have to contend with when it comes to the influences on the people's lives all week long. Folks, these small group Bible studies, this one-on-one discipleship, this is wonderful and there ought to be more of it. And we have other evenings of the week for that to take place. And we have Saturdays. And when people say, but I've got this to do and I've got that to do, then you want to ask yourself, how important are those small group studies? I would say they're far more important than many of the things that we use our evenings to do. Can't be any question about the vital nature of things like that. But ought we be relinquishing the few hours a week to be under preaching? Ought we be relinquishing that in order to provide for them? Especially when there are many lesser things that we could forfeit and have both our preaching and that engagement in a 1 Corinthians 14 sense. Now I really want, I've talked to you about insistence and urging, and I would like to ask you tonight to please help, help our church in this regard. And when I say help, what I mean by that is you yourself, I've preached it, there are other passages that we've not had time to look at. We've taken more than the time tonight. I've preached it, folks, but no preacher can keep a church straight and between the lines about these things. It's like everything. It takes you people. You have to have your persuasion about this biblical matter to where if there was a threat or there was some uprising of interest in for the sake of many, many good things, relinquishing the two preaching services that we have on the Lord's Day and the opportunity that we have most Wednesday nights for another 40 minutes or so of preaching. You folks are the ones who have to say, that's not for our church. Our church is going to keep the major accent on that pulpit and everything else in this church really is in responsiveness to what the man whom God brings to us, who's a God-called preacher, what he comes and ministers to us as a herald of that teaching. And I won't always be here to do that. I've had the opportunity now of being here for many decades. And the Lord is raising up and giving to us another wonderful preacher of God's Word. really an exceptional teacher, but a man who takes that teaching and preaches it to us. What a precious gift from Christ. Don't forfeit any of it. Folks, we don't need less preaching services. If we could have them, we need more preaching services. 
And by the grace of God, let's guard with a jealousy what we have. Thank you so much for your really close, good attention tonight to a long, long message. I want to ask you please to turn in your hymn book to 151. Say the hymn book, this is Praise Glorious. Rise up, O men of God. And what we want to do, you notice that this is addressed to men like I have been preaching about tonight. It's essentially addressed to preachers, to pastor teachers. We have a congregation tonight that is sprinkled with such men. Some of them are here on furlough. Some of them are in and out on deputation. Some of them on occasion have opportunity. Others of them are in training. You be a church. This is a church tonight saying to those men, rise up. The church for you waits. And may that be our challenge to these men tonight. Let's stand together and sing 151.